Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, my fellow human beings. Welcome to the Man Charlian Candidate, where two men, very powerful men, are going to discuss all things, whatever the hell they feel like. My name's G-Man. I'm sitting across from P-Boss. How are you today, my dude? Oh, look, I'm excited to be back, but brother, I'm a little unsettled, and <laughs> yeah. I'm determined to get through this topic and then maybe, you know, talk about Harry and the Hendersons next time. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you're right. So a little bit of a, a puff piece. Well, well, what are we talking about today? What has um, sort of uh, scared our little pants off and sent us to a really uncomfortable realm Mate, again? I don't even know where my pants are. I wish I had a GPS tracker <laughs> on them. They're off the grid. I thought you got one of those, damn it. <sighs> no, it turns Christmas out is coming. <laughs> turns out it was not a GPS tracker. Uh, <laughs> mate, today we are going to unpack the oh, the malevolent, shadowy world of demons and all things the demonic. Mm. And as is our want, we're going to explore this in a Manchildian manner through the seminal production, The Exorcist. William ah. Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. Um, and, mate. I'm excited from the perspective that you and I have rewatched and done all of that and not spoken. So this is all uh, emergent as you and I are chatting away. But mm. I'm, I guess, man, out of the gate, <laughs> how are you feeling about this one? Um, I'm I'm uncomfortable. You know, I've been very uncomfortable as we've sort of briefly discussed in the last couple of weeks. Just diving into this um, oh. has has made me really uncomfortable. And I'll just give a really quick preface to this film. One of my little sneaky things that I did when I was a young fella, I must have been about eight, eight and put to bed early, you know, in uh, daylight savings and your bedtime seven o'clock and it doesn't make any sense because it's still light outside. Totally. I snuck up and my folks were watching a movie and I had a little glimpse through the lounge room door and I was soon discovered because I shrieked at what I saw and they were in fact watching The Exorcist. Oh, wow. And I saw the pea soup thing and it, it was just, uh, it was done for me. And that almost scared me off it for good, man, from a very, very formative age, I'll tell you and that. that explains all those times in the lunchroom where someone would pull out anything that resembled soup and you'd just quiver in the corner. I get it oh, now. Hide under the hide under the table and bark like a dog for two days. Like mm -hmm. it got really weird. So, I mean, we, thanks for bringing that up in front of everybody, man. That's, sorry. Man, that's one of my little things. Hey, you're not even sorry. I know how not you roll. sorry. There's like this really nice little glint in your eye going, <laughs> now they know, the people know. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes, but today, yeah, the exorcist, right? Now this is, it. look, it makes you uncomfortable, right? Indeed. Like you. You, you, you're a you know, powerful man. And this oh. uh, shakes the pillars, yes? Look, my pillars are shook, my friend, um, regardless of the type of pant I'm wearing. This is unsettling to me, and, and I'm sort of picking up to, to your good self. It was so funny, off the cuff I spoke to a, to a friend the other day who actually has completely the opposite reaction. Um, he recently re-watched it, and then he revealed that when he went to the cinema and watched the, the re-release of this movie, he sat there in tears, laughing his head off. Mm -hmm. And I guess I did want to acknowledge that some for some people that is the reaction to this, the, the comedic, whether or not this has aged that well in terms of technology and all that sort of stuff and whether or not that takes some people out of that, yeah, I want to leave space for mm. people, that being their experience. But nah, dude, this has been 
having to inhabit that world again and to watch that movie a couple of times again, <laughs> it's yeah. just as scary as it ever was uh, for, you know, for, for this little black duck. So, Okay, well, look, I will preface as well that I'm almost in some certain scenes I'm aligning with your buddy. Um, I had some comedic moments, to be honest with you, because what happened to me was, I, as I said, I watched it accidentally, some certain bits, super young, and it kept with me, stuck with me all this time. Then upon the rewatch... Um, from the beginning till about halfway through, um, th- there was a one moment where I actually had a little giggle because I actually thought it was fanciful and quite funny. And mm. then that disappeared and then it faded away. But nonetheless, and I'll talk about that when we talk about the film in a little bit more depth, which bit actually sort of made me chuckle. But I'm not going to take away the gravitas and the power of this world that we have both been inhabiting for the last couple of weeks in Absolutely. researching this. Because it goes, it gets weird. And look, look. I think we'll touch base on that when we follow our our reasonably familiar uh, format when we kind of come back at the end of this episode and sort of do our review. But yeah, I, I had I had a couple of moments where yeah, definitely I was aware of of this this production's age in terms of you know the, the mm. special effects. Now, my friend, uh, shall we shall we put this uh, you know the wheels of this crazy bus to the bitumen and and get rolling, my friend? Please do, yes, sir, yes. Yes, um, please introduce us to this um, this hell of a piece. A hell oh, of a piece, you see. Thank you. Here we go. The Exorcist was released in only 24 theatres in the United States and Canada in late December 1973. Um, the book itself, which I'll, which I'll allude to later on, was extremely hot property g-man and friedkin uh william friedkin the director was coming off a massive hit um a couple of years before or a year before with the french connection which into itself was a very very innovative production uh, you, you it's arguable to say that you you wouldn't have movies like the fast and the furious or the transporter without uh the original french connection some of the best car chases of all time in that film dude you know absolutely love it absolutely my friend now this this movie broke every individual attendance record in every cinema it played in and became the most most successful movie that all of these 24 individual cinemas had ever shown audiences g-man absolutely flocked to to this movie they waited in massive long lines during the cold winter weather um, and many were doing so more than once. In fact, the wait was so long that William Friedkin organised coffee to be hand-delivered to people, you know, to the punters waiting in lines. I think, again, this is this is something to sort of recognise that this is so far predating internet and any of this sort of um, viral marketing. It was just word of mouth. Mm. Um, and look, this is this is pretty well known, but super fun to go over again. But you know, some viewers, a reasonable percentage of viewers, suffered adverse physical reactions um, from the coffee. You know, he was handing out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, damn yes. it, Friedkin! <laughs> what did you put uh, in the cup of joe? I, I wanted the almond <laughs> latte. Um, you know, fainting mm. and vomiting. Um, so, you know, as we'll no doubt allude to later on, there's some pretty 
crazy scenes in this movie. Um, so particularly moving for audiences was obviously the the crucifix uh, mm. scene, but also as you'd remember now watching the movie again, the the um, the cerebral angiography or the spinal tap scene, which Reagan, you know, undergoes. Mm. Um, so, dude, there was heart attacks. There was even a miscarriage reported. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and, and mental health clinicians published a paper on cinematic neurosis triggered by this film wow. at the time. Goodness me. That must have been a new term, dude. Oh, look, I think I think it's worth just flagging this now that this this film broke ground on so many levels. We we have to just pause for a moment and think of what horror looked like before this movie mm. came out. And I know that some auteurs are angry at this film because it was the progenitor of a cavalcade of you know demonic possession movies that sort of were that have been produced for the last sort of nearly 50 years ad nauseum since but we really have to just take a moment and and look at what what the genre of horror was like before this movie came along. I, I, I'm thinking, I don't know, off the top of my head, maybe Rosemary's Baby was the closest thing to anything that would be sort of scary from that those times. Well, G-Man. Actually schlocky a little bit more before that, wasn't it? It was um, real sort of the, the cliched 50s sort of sci-fi. It came from outer space and all of this sort of stuff. The creature from the Black Lagoon, etc. you know, which um, yeah. is laughable now. But, you know, at the time, this is kind of what we had, and it was um, that's right, yeah, and it was special effects driven. You know, that's when it sort of started really coming into its own. Yeah, and that's where that's where we get division. Some people love the fact that it opened the world of special effects. Other mm. people, you know, don't really like that. Um, so we have to we have to realize that audiences were going into this movie. You know, the idea of horror was, you know, mummy movies and, and uh, you know, Norman Bates and all these sorts of things. And in they walked to this movie. <laughs> I would have loved to have actually been a fly on the wall just because you, you, I guess you're almost culturally you're, you're experiencing a paradigm shift mm -hmm. of, of epic proportion. Um, many children were actually allowed to see the film, which I reckon is really oh, tricky. Idiot. And that that sort of led a movement to to sort of start to hassle the MPAA ratings board because they had accommodated, and I use accommodated in talking fingers because there's some speculation about backdoor business deals here. But, you know, the Warner Brothers had accommodated by giving the film an R rating instead of what many thought it, it had deserved an X rating. And this obviously had a massive impact in, in, in the uh, commercial success of this, of this movie. Several cities attempted to ban it outright um, or to prevent children attending at all. The interesting thing with this is the juggernaut that it became, G-Man. Mm. Um, and I want to preface this little section with saying this, this movie was effectively Jaws before Jaws. So, so, look, since it was a horror film that had gone well over budget, which we'll come back to later, and didn't really have any major stars in the lead roles, Warner Brothers just did not expect... They had very low expectations for this movie. 
and and it didn't preview the film for critics booked its initial release for only 30 30 screens in 24 theaters um, mostly in large cities despite this man it grossed 1.9 million dollars in its first week and that's back in 1973 mm, so mm. you know setting setting records as, as as i said house records in every theater the huge crowds attracted to the film forced the studio to kind of wake up and expand it into you know wide release and and at the time that strategy of wide release was rarely used for this type of film and two years later, G Fresh, the Universal Studios learnt from what happened here, and they would open Jaws on 500 screens across go. the country. So the parallels again, when I say Jaws before Jaws, a highly successful book combining with a you know red hot director, lots of parallels here. A couple of later, a couple of years later, with Jaws. Now, dude. Uh, it went on to make $193 million worldwide and as of 2019 has taken $441,306,000. That's a lot of uh, a lot of clams, bro. <laughs> Is that inflated as well? Like, have we done well, inflation numbers? I'll inflate in a moment if you if you if you give <laughs> you me some room. <laughs> I come pre-inflated. You know this. Uh, this includes in two thousand, bro, bro. When it, when the it was the cinematically released director's cut came out, this includes one hundred and twelve million dollars that it took on re-release. Mm. Um, just crackers. So, are you ready for me to inflate? Oh, goodness. I think so. Justed for inflation, my friend, this movie has made the equivalent of $1.8 billion if it was released today. Ah, now that's some inflation right there. That's a lot of that's a lot of clams. That's up there with Marvel franchise then, isn't it? In relative terms, isn't it? Yeah. Bro, bro, that's not bad for a movie that's, that's original budget was $5 million. Mm. Um, absolutely crazy. So the cultural conversation that that sort of hangs around this film, which also encompassed, encompassed its treatment of Catholicism, helped this movie to become the first horror film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, dude. Wow, eh? It in fact it in fact received ten Academy Award nominations. It won Best Adapted Screenplay and Best sound. And gosh, I'm going to talk about oh, the sound. <laughs> yeah, I can see why it won the sound, dude. Oh, yeah, completely. Oh. <laughs> um, it was the highest grossing R-rated horror film um, until the re- release in 2017 of uh, Stephen King's It, or the re-release. No, remake, we'll say. Dude, that's crazy. So highest grossing R-rated horror film, you know, right up until two. 2017. Yeah, 40 years, dude. That's pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. wow. What is that? What is that says a lot about it, really, doesn't it? You know, everything about it. The production. Come on, it's crazy. Absolutely. So, so you know, we we're having we're having a horror movie, you know, have a quasi cultural impact. So it definitely had a systemic impact. It changed many things, but yeah, this this had a this had a cultural impact in in many ways as well. Um, it's had a significant influence on popular culture and has you know since received much critical acclaim 
um, with several several publications regarding it as still one of the greatest horror films ever made. In 2010, my dude, the Library of Congress selected the film to be preserved in its National Films Registry, citing it as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Wow. Um, I mean, geez. Goodness me. I mean... The fact is that, um, and we'll talk about the some of the ramifications of, you know, the cultural ramifications and theological ramifications yeah. of this film, you know, uh, later on in the program. But that's um, that's a good piece of knowledge, man. Like that's pretty pretty amazing to be recognised like that. Isn't it crazy, dude? Like yeah. like as yeah. as I as I said to you the other day, it's like in in sort of going deep into the research, it's there's a, there's a few things where it's kind of like, why didn't I know that? Like that's that seems to be really important information to know. Moving on, if you don't mind, my dude, to yes. to the section that I usually call the story of the story. This is where it gets. I, I think this is where I always get you know one foot into being scared. Um, aspects of Blatty's fictional novel were inspired by the 1949 exorcism performed on a uh, an anonymous young boy who was often sort of listed as Roland Doe but it's speculated that his name was Robbie Mannheim. So, yeah, a 1949 exorcism of, of Robbie Mannheim by the Jesuit priest father William S. Bowden. The boy's family became convinced the boy's aggressive behaviour was attributable to demonic possession and, yeah, called upon the services of, of several Jesuit priests initially who said, sorry, this is actually a job for the Catholic priests. And, you know, Father Bowden was, was called in to perform the rite of exorcism. This event was actually, it's in the books. It's it's one of the three exorcisms um, to have been sanctioned by the Catholic Church in the United States at that time. So I won't go too deeply into the into this story. This this one was a gosh, it was a it was a malevolent wormhole unto itself. Um, culminating in you know, it went on for such a long time, culminating in apparently the the voice of the angel, the archangel Saint Michael, finally uh, coming out of this child as being the only thing that uh, that sort of removed the demon. It was oh, doing Dude. that, doing that research, G man. I was like, why am I doing mm. this at night? Mm. I am a fool. <laughs> and don't speak any names aloud in your house because you will hear scratchings. I'm telling oh, you. Don't even get, <laughs> oh, don't gosh. even get me started on that. So in 1971, the book was released, but dude. Sales were slow, and this bit's interesting Interesting to me. It's kind of in a random way, and very much last minute, Blatty was booked as a guest on the Dick Cavett show, and one week later, the book went to the bestseller list, my dudeski, and stayed there for 55 weeks. So a weird bit of... I don't know if you'd call it... You'd, I guess you'd have to call it luck, serendipity. Um, it went on to sell more than 13 million copies in the in the US alone. Um, and obviously, you know, it became a, a sensation and Warner Brothers snapped up the film rights. Here's one of the first sort of bits where it gets different and interesting. Blatty signed on obviously as a, as a screenwriter, but he was able to negotiate to be a producer, which was just unheard of before that. Writers and, 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 you know, they were lucky if they if they got to sort of 
uh, create the screenplay from their own books. So Blatty not only signed on as the one to adapt the screenplay, but also he was a producer. So he had quite a ton of control, man. That's probably the end of the story of the story. Mm. And now we kind of move into the cast because as Blatty wrote or adapted the screenplay, um, dude, the studio searched for a director. And so Arthur Penn, Peter Bogdanovich, and some guy called Stanley Kubrick were, mm, all, of him. <laughs> were all offered the film. And it's it was prescient, your use of this word earlier, my friend. They all dismissed it as horror schlock. So it's very it was very interesting um, because Blatty, and this is a dude, this is another thing, man. This was his first horror. Blatty was actually quite well known and had been quite well established as a comedy writer. <laughs> Yeah, that's like it's one of those things, you know, when you get a comedic actor and you give him a drama role, usually they're some of the finest actors you've ever seen. Somehow you come at this other aspect, isn't that? Yeah, it's interesting. interesting. Isn't that ding? Yeah, isn't I like that crazy. It. So obviously they they um they approached Friedkin and Friedkin could smell what he was cooking. For William Friedkin absolutely absolutely loved it. And studios were super happy with him because of his previous um, you know, he was hot property because of what he did with the French connection. So G-Man, progressing to the cast, as I threatened, we have a Max von Sydow as as Father Merrin. Look, I've got to ask you, like, what did you think of Max von Sydow as Father Merrin? I think he's cool, man. I really liked him, and I've completely forgot how the film opens with mostly him. And um, well, I want to come know, back to that, like that. We, we, oh. Yeah, sorry if I've just sort of no, don't there, but no, it's one of those things. Like, I, and sure, he was, um, he's in it right at the very start. I thought, oh, okay, goodness, I've forgotten all about this. Absolutely. But then, I he's in a bugger all, you know. And then I was like, oh, that's yeah. a bit of a shame. But yeah, I love him, dude. I think he's rad, dude. The guy was only forty-two years old. He didn't look forty. He looked seventy. In that, in that so role, they decided dude. they obviously wanted a an A list. Like actor, I mean, gee whiz, Max Max von Sydow. By that point in his career, had kind of done every, anything and everything. He, mm. He'd played Jesus Christ himself, um, but yeah, he was only forty-two years old. Which I don't know. For me, he was just that age, locked into that sort of seventy-something for years. I actually yeah. found it surprising. Um, Ellen Burstyn as Chris McNeil, um, Reagan's mother. What, I mean, what was your what was your vibe? Because I, I personally found her performance absolutely compelling. Mm, um, I don't I don't really take to her to be honest with you. She was kind of detracting. Yeah, I don't know if it was her character or it was her her pose, but um, yeah, she wasn't for me. Mm. I I would put it to you at this early stage of our discussion that it probably is her character because she kind of is playing, you know, the quintessential movie star, Mm. I think, kind of vapid sort of a role. But, oh, man, there's a couple of of key moments. Um, I think it's when she first approaches, uh, I think it's Karis, and sort of asks about Catholicism and, oh, I just found her her performance um, incredible. Sorry, asking about um, exorcism. Mm. And uh, it's kind of like, it's a pivotal moment because it's kind of like she's holding all this information in. She's like, nah, dude, there's, there is a demon inside my daughter, um, you know, 
I thought she was wonderful. Now, the studio actually approached Anne Bancroft, Jane Fonda, and Audrey Hepburn. Oh, I love Jane Fonda, um, dude. I love her. Well, Jane Fonda was on that whole um, anti-capitalist, like, you know, flower power, power to the people thing. Mm. So she was, she was apparently... Highly dismissive. She was like, <laughs> yeah. you know, made seriously. She yeah, was like, oh, why would I? Why would I want to participate in this? You know, capitalist farce. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, well, you only just only Barbarella to say too. No. Be quiet. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the eighties, you're going to be flogging crappy exercise videos. So get off <laughs> your bloody high horse. Um, and Audrey Hepburn mm. was considered was and Audrey, Audrey Hepburn actually said, look, if <laughs> I'll do it if you can move the production to France. Well. I'd call that one of the softest no's ever. I might try that. <laughs> yeah. Someone wants me to go out. I'll go, well, I'll do it if That's we can go out That's not a bad idea, dude. You get to try that on, actually. You might be surprised. <laughs> it's a crazy world we live in now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, dude, what did you think of Jason Miller as Father Karras? Oh, he was great. How did you like How did you like his performance? Yeah, he was great. Um, I don't know anything about him before or after, to be honest. But, um, I mean, being a pugilist priest, pretty rad. And he carried it off pretty well, man. He carried it off. Bro, that was his first role on screen. There you go. Jason Miller was a playwright and he would act in, in his own plays um, and there was just a bit of, of it was fortuitous that uh, Friedkin happened to see one of his productions and see him on stage. Mm. That freaks me out to think that Jason Miller had never acted on screen before that movie because I found his performance so compelling. He's almost the hub of the wheel. Mm. He's almost the glue that holds a thing, the whole thing together. Um, buddy, Linda Blair, th- mm. this this kid this kid divides communities as as the ill fated uh, Reagan O'Neill. What was your What was your vibe with with that performance, my bro? Dude, she's incredible. Oh, thank we'd God. never seen anything like that. Like we'd never seen anything like that. Holy burgers! And you alluded to it earlier. The um, you know, the crucifix scene when oh. she's in the bed. Oh. Nah, man, nah, that is horrible. And. I don't know how she did it all. It's yeah. nuts, man. Yeah. Really, yeah. really, really, really. And anyone that thinks that that's not absolutely baffling when we hadn't seen that shit before, you know what I mean? Oh, I do. That was crazy, man. Cray, cray, cray. Yeah. To me, this was one of the most challenging pieces, pieces of casting that I can sort of think of on so many levels. I mean, first and foremost, the material. Um you know, Linda Blair talked about having, you know, real struggles with the language. You know, gee whiz, man. Some of the some of the things that she has to say, even as a thirteen year old actress, um, there were moments there were moments in sort of early production when Max von Sydow had went off and had to have chats with with producers and, and directors. He was really struggling with what this young child had to say. Yeah. Um I also think the the polar extremes that this kid has to be able to play. Um, the, the, on one hand, the, she is you know the movie at the start of the movie she's the epitome of wholesome goodness and innocence. You know what I mean? Mm. Now the same actor has to then also portray just pure malevolence, my bro, bro. Yes. Um, depraved, depraved, oh. it's horrendous. Yes. I I actually think that her performance, I'm going to say this, I actually think it's still, to this day, underrated. I reckon that would be savagely challenging as an actor to, to, swing, to swing from, you know, polar opposites and embody each, um, I think, skillfully. 
at this point, I do want to want to acknowledge as really being very important in the cast, the voice acting of Mercedes McCambridge. Um, so McKay, Mercedes McCambridge, veteran, I think she's about 57, veteran Oscar award-winning actress, um, came on board, dude. Um, I mean, what did you think? What did you think of the voice work of, of you know, the voice of the demon? Dude, it's it's horrible. Like it, there's nowhere, no other way to say it, you know. It's, um, yeah, it's absolutely rotten and she nailed it. She's in here with us, my friend. And it's concerning that um, if she just came up with that, you know, she's a deeply uh, troubled human or she's just a stunning actress. Um, this, yeah, all the source material where she got it from, something else too, hey. <laughs> my bro, this, this is probably, um, this is probably good to, a good segue to meander into kind of a, a, a category that I've roughly listed as carnage on set. I'll mention this quite a few times, but Friedkin was kind of... Bill Friedkin was kind of a card-holding nut bar. <laughs> that dude would do anything to get the shot. Um, he would do anything to to serve the story. Um, so working with Mercedes McCambridge, they recorded her voice work strapped into a chair. He, he restrained her and strapped her into a chair because he wanted that concept of the demon being, you know, inside and stuck inside and encased inside Reagan's body. Mm. Um, he made her, like, drink raw eggs to contribute to the voice sound. And she had... Had lots of problems with alcoholism in her life and was sober, had had been sober. And he, they both apparently decided that it was a good thing for her to start drinking grog again to, to get into this role. So yeah, method acting to say... And method know, directing, yeah. Method directing might <laughs> yeah. do. Like, um, very tricky. I don't know if you'd get away with that these days, like getting a recovering, you know, anything addict and saying, you know what, you should dip into that again. That'll be good for this. Um, (laughs) So in terms of the carnage, there's too much to list. So I'm just going to go through a couple of key points here. But I will say that Linda Linda Blair described pretty much anything that they did to her once the possession, I suppose the possession phase was beginning as uncomfortable to say the least. Uh, examples would be that her possession scenes were shot in a refrigerated room. Um, you couldn't CGI in breath in nah. 1973, <laughs> so they pretty much they pretty much recorded all of her scenes um, in a in a freezer, a fridge. Mm. Mm. The frame that they created for the body contortions fractured her lower back. What? Really? Oh, dude, this this stuff this stuff goes deep. Okay. And look, this may this may fairly well contribute to the, you know, to the tough trot that she had in the in the, in the ensuing years. Um, you know what I mean? Like she didn't she, life didn't go too smoothly for poor, poor Linda Blair. Um, you know, like I said to the other day, <laughs> she was uh she was going out with Rick James. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know if that's a great time or a really great time or a horrible time, man. Things got, <laughs> things got powdery, yeah. to, say the, to say the least. Indeed. I thought this was interesting. Marcel Vercuter, the, the special effects supervisor, he, was co- he commented that he considered his role in the production to be the devil. And I'd encourage listeners to to look at the footage of this guy talking. It's he's a little bit NQR. Like he talks about causing actors discomfort and pain, particularly Linda Blair, and he's not exactly the model of regret. It's it's odd. So he sort of had discussions with Friedkin, who obviously loved this idea that his role in creating special effects was kind of to be the vehicle of the devil. Chris Newman, the sound recordist, oh, I have such mixed feelings about this, incorporated the recordings of quote-unquote real exorcisms um, into the sound design of Reagan's possession scenes. Mm. Yeah, that, that's what I understand. It's, um, and that's what makes that rewatch, with that knowledge, mind you. Um, oh. Yeah, pretty messed up, dude. Whose um, exorcisms were they recordings of, do you know? Look, I couldn't... I couldn't hard to know. I couldn't find that data, but he, um, it was, you know, he he's quoted when he's talking about it, he's taking pride in terms of going, no, no, real, actual, you know, exorcisms. Um yeah, dude. We talk, I think we talked about that in one of our very early episodes, but yeah, I get mixed feelings about that. It's just like, I wish I'd known that earlier in my watches of this of this program. I would just like to know, you know? <laughs> Knowledge like, power. I feel like there should be a warning <laughs> on the label. Yeah. Um, some of some of Linda Blair's scenes were, were kind of so intense, they actually... You know, required the the recruitment of a of a twenty one year old lady called Eileen Dietz to effectively be a stunt double. You know, and although it's mostly most all of Linda Blair in the scenes, um, some of the some of the more extreme moments, you know, required a stunt double. Ellen Burstyn famously was injured in a rigging accident that actually makes the final cut. So when when the possessed Reagan, you know, cracks her and sends her across the room, um, the shot of her face and her registering pain is actually real. She really hurt herself, cracked ribs, all that stuff. And again, the director, before he rolled the camera, looked over at the rigging guy and literally winked and said, this time you really need to give it to her. Mm. Crazy, crazy stuff. Um, Dude, when I say Friedkin would do anything to get a shot, bro, he had guns hidden all around the set, shotguns, revolvers, the whole thing, and would just be randomly during scenes be shooting them, be firing them. What? Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, like James Brown esque, um, to just to to get reactions and to get distress out of out of the actors and into their performance. <laughs> you know, he would he he famously would would belt actors. So there was a scene with one of the actors at the end when he's yeah. giving um, Jason Miller's character Father Karras the last rites after he's jumped out the window. Mm. Sorry, kids, spoilers, but. Um, yeah, he, he sort of said to the guy, look, you know, I need more out here. The guy kind of said, dude, we've done 15 takes. Um, so Friedkin just went, <laughs> just cracked him and then went roll camera. 
and the actor the actor talks about how when his hands are shaking in the scene, it's because they're <laughs> it's actually full shaking. of adrenaline. Oh my god! Because <laughs> he's just been he's just been given a McFisto with cheese. <laughs> um, Jason Miller's son during production, young son, the poor kid, got hit by a motorbike. And his legs were crushed. And the kid was in intensive care for 10 days. Bro, production was hardly halted. They required Jason Miller to continue to come on set and, and to perform. So many things led this heavy speculation from the crew that the devil was present. So I'm sure you're going to allude to some of this phenomena uh, later on, but crew were talking about hearing scratching in the walls, mm. knocking on the floors, bumping in the ceilings, and this is just on the set. So this is there's no there's no real wall. There's nothing you know, um, really harrowing stuff. Apparently, it became so bad that Blatty asked a priest by the name of um, Father Thomas King to multiple times to come and bless the set. Um, on his second day on set, Max von Sydow's brother died. <laughs> um, there was just a whole bunch of things that just led to the, this momentum of the idea that this production, at best, was was under the control of this crazy, quirky maniac, but at worst was you know starting to become uh, cursed. Um, Jack McGowan, who played Burke Dennings, um, I think he's an, a director in, in the movie, died two weeks after finishes, finishing his scenes, only at the age of 54, of the flu. Oh, man. I think what is somewhat significant here is he he's the guy that Reagan kills. You mm. know, so in their confrontation, it's just... I mean, make of it what you will, but gee, willikers. Um, and then there's the there's the story about one of the one of the sets burning down. Now, I will I will have to admit that this was not how this happened, or if this happened, was not agreed upon by all cast and crew. Some sort of said, "Look, it was just a little electrical fire that this this happens." But other other crew members were saying, "Look, a whole entire set burnt down, and there was no feasible reason why that would happen." And I thought this was of note, G Fresh, to finish up and pass into your warm little hands. The address of the building on Fifth Avenue, where the final film was edited, can can you? Can you just guess what the what the address might have been uh, of this building on Fifth Avenue? Well, it's going to be six 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 Curse Street or something, right? It was it was literally six hundred and sixty six Fifth Avenue. There you go, man. Unreal. Uh, something in there, dude. I you know whether what it's, uh, coincidences are phenomenal, aren't they? I'm a big fan of them because you can read into them if you wish, but I don't know, it just gets a bit freaky after too many and, you know, it sounds like a really cursed production man run by a couple of psychos. Um, this I didn't needless, know. <laughs> needless, needless to say, it uh, it ran a little over budget and a little over time. Medical but, expense. Um, <laughs> oh, Cheers. I mean... You know, this this stuff just wouldn't happen these days. If 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 an actor's child is in intensive care, if an if an actor's sibling dies, you know, yeah. you're not going to say, "Oh, dude, that's a bummer," but you know your lines for tomorrow, and they're on set at six a.m. Yeah, yeah. 
Desperately, please. You're, you're, you lose your job. Yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? Goodness gracious, man. There's a couple of films out there that have massively cursed sort of productions in them. And I know, you know, Don Quixote has been uh, a, a production that's been fraught with curses for some reason. Like they can never seem to make the film. And there's a film that Terry Gilliam makes about the film that he was trying to make and, you know, lost that's in the right. or something, whatever it's called. It's amazing. So, yeah, there are some cursed cursed productions out there but this makes more sense that it's sort of cursed whether you've um ugh, summoned something and i you know like no man well f- thanks man for that um the knowledge powerhouse that you you uh, brought to the table there that's some knowledge i really didn't know and um makes it unsettling knowing that the um the production is that fraught hey it really does oh it and and i and i just i'm probably going to keep saying this but inhabiting this film as as I have had to do and and have done whoa, it's 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 a tricky one for me yeah I, I probably won't go back to this one for a, <laughs> for a while you don't even have to man like you just don't I don't have no. to do it no you really don't I think you've locked it I in won't. For good forever right. <laughs> oh man well thanks so much for that that's absolutely rad and I think we'll get back to a little bit more of um the filmography a little bit later on, but if, if you wouldn't mind me Absolutely. doing a little meandering discussion about some certain things that I've been looking into, because um, this is where I... Rectum oh. <laughs> I'm going to need a little bit of help after all of this too, I say. Uh, this is a, it's going to be a bit of a punchy segment. I've got some interesting stuff that I found, man, and um, it's going to be meandering about um, uh, the occult and how seriously people have taken demonic possession. Uh, I'm going to talk about a couple of demons, um, themselves oh. that they actually reckon uh, do some inhabiting, um, who has written some of these books, some really crazy occultists at just the turn of the 19th uh, to 20th century, um, and some modern iterations of um, how exorcism is treated now and how seriously the Vatican and many agencies across the planet are, in fact, treating demonic possession. Uh, even to this day, even this year, there are examples of this. And so... I'm going to just uh, launch in here with this felon named Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Now, he wrote a book, uh, three books, in fact, um, of occult philosophy in 1531. Now, he alludes to a few terms here, and I'm just going to read this little passage that he has written. And he says, Now, the parts of ceremonial magic are Goetia and Theurgia. Goetia is unfortunate by the commences of unclean spirits made up of the rites of wicked curiosities, unlawful charms and deprecations and is abandoned and execrated by all laws. Now, my takeaways from his paragraph here are he was as eloquent as he was insane, but the two words of importance here really are the Latin term goetia, uh, which refers to the evocation of demons or evil spirits and it's derived from an ancient greek word which is pretty much the same meaning witchcraft or jugglery should you be saying those words i'm just checking man like (laughs) please tell me yeah please tell me the book that you're reading from right now is not made out of human skin i i don't know where it's gone Plato, <laughs> Verata. No, I know, and and yeah, I know. It gets it gets freaky, and I haven't even started. If yet. you are reading the Necronomicon, I'll be it's, so pissed off. Actually, with you. worse than that, and I'm going to. The other word is theurgy, and that describes the practice of rituals, sometimes seen as magic in nature, performed with the intention of invoking the action or evoking the presence of one or more deities 
especially with the goal of achieving a henosis. Um, and henosis is a new word for me as well, and that's uh, a oneness and uniting with the divine. Ah, oh, uh, yeah, the yeah, divine. But cool. Other people's the divine is subjective, dude. This it is really the real is. problem. All right, I'm getting that already. Interestingly, this was fantastic for me. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, the fella I'm just been talking about, he wrote this other book. Now, I'm going to do my absolute best to pronounce this, and it's. Declamatio de Noblietat et Precalentia Fomine Sexus. And that is the declamation on the nobility and preeminence of the female sex. And he wrote this pronouncing the theological and moral superiority of women. Amazing. Yes. Dude. Love it. It's 1529. We seem to have lost this book. It's insane. We've got to work on this. Anyway. More importantly, um, this is in the mid-17th century. This book called The Lesser or Little Key of Solomon um, is an anonymous grimoire um, compiled from sources centuries earlier. So this book that I just mentioned by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa and his disciple Johann Weyer are definitely the inspirations for this. Now, in this Lesser Key of Solomon, it's divided into five separate books, and the first being Ars Goetia. Goetia, of course, the evocation of demons, as we discussed before. Now, Ars Goetia is a list of the 72 demons. Like unequivocally, and they claim to know all of them in a hierarchical form, which is stunning. And it's the 72 demons, so it's it's not more and it's not less, you see. And um, Alistair Crowley published his own version in 1904, used for the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, and we'll talk about him a little bit later and his sort of some of his madness. Um, but as I said, it's the description of the 72 demons and their sigils or seals in order of rank and importance to the legions of hell. And there are 72 commanded by only four, um, each representative of the cardinal directions, right? Which is interesting. Is it really, really sort of irresponsible to mention who these four demons are on, on this show? Should I? Do- oh. I might do it. I will tell you what, it got a bit freaky and there was a storm the other night and I was going through this and I was reading them out aloud and it wasn't okay. But anyway, if you're oh. a tender soul and thought in mind, I'm going to read these names out. They're not that bad, man. They're not that bad. Hang so, on, I'm just, I'm just going to mute you. Okay, good idea. Amaimon <laughs> is of the east, Corson of the west, Zeminina of the north, and Gap or Garp of the south. And they have alternative and slight variations to their names, right? But... What I love is we go further into this, a couple of the other guys that I'm going to mention here upon the list, um, and then I'm going to talk about a few other demons that aren't on this list that are from other cultures around the world, and they're actually fascinating, some of these dudes. Now, what you'll notice is most of these creatures have human and beast form. They're often riding a beast, they often have a hawk, and they often do some really messed up stuff. Baal is probably one of the most known in the pseudo-moniker of the demons, He's one of the high, the highborn, and he appears in the form of a cat, a toad, and a man, and he's the king of the demons, and he commands um, 66 legions of demons. You know, as far as I know, that's a lot. I think that's a lot of demons. And one of his main men is um, Agares, an old man who rides a crocodile and carries a hawk. And one of his skills is, um, apart from some little leadership roles as well, is he can cause earthquakes. 
And this is the irony. If he's the one that possesses you or puts power over you, yeah, he can teach his host every language known, every language. Except the caveat there is that all you can say in those languages is the most offensive things possible, right? So in my journey, what I've been discovering is that all these demons have got this horrible thing on. They're kind of like, you know, genies in a way. They do this, they give a benefit, but they have this huge curse as well. Another one of the fellas is Balaam. He's one of Hell's lieutenants, and he only commands 40 legions of demons, right? So that's not that many, nothing like Baal. Three heads, one of a bull, a ram, a human, fire from his eyes, and a serpent's tail. Very cliched sort of fella. He knows the past, present, future, and, and can make you, as the host, incredibly charismatic and also invisible. I don't know what the caveat there is. That actually sounds kind of excellent. And the final one from this list that I thought was of interest is uh, Amy. So if you know anyone called Amy, well, you got to tell them a thing or two. Amy's described as a president, right? Appearing initially as a flame before turning into human form. Um, he is claimed to teach astronomy, liberal arts, give familiars, incite positive reactions from rulers, and reveal treasure. <sighs> Okay, so it's starting to get a little less scary, right? Because this sounds actually <laughs> awesome. Amy, uh, thank you very much. This is careful. sounding okay. Careful, boy. Careful. <laughs> yeah, i got to be careful to be too, too excited by all of this. Um, now, there is one that gets a bit freaky, and this is uh, his name is Choronzon. Um, and he is the spirit of dispersion and the occupier of the abyss that Alistair Crowley highlights and attempts to achieve mastery of. This is his divine purpose is to get into the abyss or traverse right between the phenomenal and the nominal it's crazy so but he's not really an individual he's actually more all forms you know that whole thought it's it's everything he's thought he's power etc but nonetheless he also decides to become quite real and he's shown to interact with the Thelemites. This is uh, the folk that follow Crowley quite closely um, mm -hmm. during summoning rituals as dust or sand, right? And this, he's been mentioned in so much literature since. In fact, Neil Gaiman writing Sandman, very closely tied with Chironzon's actuality. Megadeth mentioned him in a song, Looking Down the Cross. Um, there's a heap, heap of symbology of Chironzon in Twin Peaks and even video games. Um, and Chironzon appears as a collectible for those fans out there in um, Shin Megami Tensei. So get on that if that's one of your things. Jeez. It's nuts. Um, but let me drift a little further across the world, if you wouldn't mind. And, um, Please. You know, we're going to be talking about the jinn. The jinn ah, uh, created. This is uh, Islamic, pre-Islamic Arabian belief, a jinn, and thought really to be genies. Um, and they're created by what they call fitra, which is innate nature, or it's just an original disposition of nature. So they're actually part and inherently part of uh, everything. Mm. So you've got good and evil and this other one, which is where the fitra lie, yeah? And so angels and demons and jinn. Um, and they're zoomorphic, which means they can appear as almost whatever they like, yeah? So you've got snakes and owls and cats, and they can even form as thunderstorms and all this rad stuff like that. So a jinn are another thing that can inhabit you and control you. And they're a little bit, a little bit cheeky in that sort of regard, you know? Like, we know, you know, Robin Williams' genie, for instance, is a little mm -hmm. bit cheeky. And so likewise, as you say, they give you this amazing positive, like you can have all the riches in the world, but you've got no eyes or hands or something, so you can't spend it or see it, you know, that sort of thing. If we go to uh, Japan... Um, they've got a really 
crazy demon called the Oni, um, a Japanese yokai, hideous demonic creatures, right? They're war demons. Um, tall, horn, sharp claws, and they're many colors. And samurai would often wear a similar sort of kabuki or... Um, or Oni mask as they ran into battle. One, obviously to protect their face, but two, of course, to instill fear in one's enemies, my guy. Seriously. And they bring calamities. This is their whole purpose. War, pestilence, uh, earthquakes again, and eclipses before we knew that was procession. It's like, oh my God, the sun's gone. Can you believe it? It's absolutely nuts. Um, and so they're uh, quite cannibalistic too they actually like eating humans and all this sort of stuff so those inhabited have some cannibalistic tendencies not unlike when we go to north america for the wendigo Ah. now the wendigo is uh from north american is more you know we're actually talking about the continent so we're talking the great lakes region and more so canada but the uh algonquin indian folk the natives had their demon um a humanoid of the Wendigo, who would possess its victims and give them an insatiable appetite for human flesh. Now, so much so that in modern psychiatry, um, there's a psychosis that we call Wendigo psychosis, which is characterized by symptoms um, with an intense craving for human flesh and or an intense fear of becoming a cannibal. So you've got Wendigo um, psychosis if you're like, oh, gee, I might actually become a cannibal. So this is incredible fear. It's it's absolutely nuts, right? Wow. Yeah, that, I know. And and that also that also brings to mind, you know, Skinwalker Ranch and oh, yeah. you know some other intersectionality because I remember years ago going deep in that and having some of the the Native American people sort of speculating that that it's you know a Skinwalker and a Wendigo are in the same. Oh, but the I never, I never hear good <laughs> reviews. I <No>. never hear. <laughs> no, gee, I had a five-star review of Skinwalker Ranch. You know, <sighs> breakfast in bed. Yes. I had breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah nice. Yeah. Um, and finally, the last demon I'm going to mention is uh, well, he was basically the demon of all demons, and the one that is featured in The Exorcist, which is the Assyrio-Babylonian god demon um, Pazuzu. Um, and they've got little statuettes of this fella from 800 or 700 BC um, from that same region. And it's now in the Louvre. Like, really did exist. And this is the one featured in the old uh, Exorcist. And um, he's the king of demons, Pazuzu, the king of demons and wind, which is good, I suppose. Thank you for that. Um, the bearer of storms and droughts. So there's famine in the dry season and locusts in the wet. Oh, come on. Give the people a break, Pazuzu. Um, and he's always depicted in multiple Bits. He's human, yes. he's dog, he's got the head of a lion, talons of an eagle, two pairs of wings, a scorpion's tail, and a serpentine willy. This is described. That is actually a oh, really important part of it. one of my favourite musicians, Serpentine Willie. <laughs> he's, oh. he's old, but he's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's a bit of a full-on dude, right? Wow. So there's a little summary of some of the demons that we can summon into our own lounge rooms if we feel like um, if we feel like that, you know? Yeah. I, I don't recommend it, uh, people. Um, but this is where I want to drift into something a little bit more real because that is fairly fanciful and it's kind of hard to understand. Well, real is a relative term. It, yes. it is It is interesting, though, just to take a Joseph Campbellian moment and, and look at how the, the, this, these ideas are transferable across time and culture, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, every, every group of, 
humans um, in, in any incarnation over any time have had a shared belief of these malevolent icons. Yes. Um, and I've always, what I've always found is some of the imagery is transferable as well. It's kind of like, well, what's with that? And, yeah. Similar you know, motifs, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And, and, uh, that, that, you know, again, if you allow yourself flights of fancy, you kind of could frame questions of, well, how does that image of that entity look exactly the same and they are ge- geologically and chronologically separated yeah um what's yeah. that about <laughs> exactly and we discussed a little bit of that in our ancient civilizations app as well how the similarities between these cultures you know across the other side of the planet yes. no knowledge of each other are coming up with some really similar ideas yeah. phenomenal stuff dude and this yeah it this is well included um, there's a fella, right? A fella named Edward Kelly. Um, he's he's a he's a real dude. Um, English Renaissance occultist, self-declared scryer and spirit medium. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and he claimed to be a uh, also an alchemist. Which um, to those that um, know anything about alchemy, I, I've learned. A, I knew a bit about it, I suppose, from video games and just general knowledge, but I had learned a little bit more about it based on learning that all of these folk, and we're talking about um, this fellow Edward Kelly, his dear friend John Dee, and later on, later, later on, Alistair Crowley getting into alchemy. And the direct description of this is a form of speculative thought that, among other aims, tries to transform base metals such as lead, copper, silver, um, into gold, mostly, or silver and gold. Um, but also to discover the cure of disease and a way of extending life. And it really is the etymological origin of what we now know as chemistry, alchemy, right? So these guys were into some, into some stuff. Anyway, this guy, John D., who was Edward Kelly's friend, was Queen Elizabeth I's royal magus in the mid to late 16th century, so 1538 onwards, right? And a magus is an interesting term, and um, a magus is a member of an ancient hereditary priestly class from Persia and is also, from video games and fantasy, is a sorcerer or a magician, and this is exactly what they were. And so before theology, the countries were really leaning on um, knowledge from the Magi, these, in fact, priestly fellas that had some sort of hidden knowledge. And the three wise men, right, who delivered gifts to the infant Jesus were Magi. This was what they were doing. So anyway, John Dee and Edward Kelly became swift friends, and um, they started writing interesting manuscripts themselves about the occult. They claim to have had the Philosopher's Stone, right? This stone that is from, you know, uh, explored in the Harry Potter universe, which I just thought was fantasy. But here it is. These guys have got this Philosopher's Stone, which helps them activate alchemical functions. It's absolutely nuts. Both of these nut bars um, practiced necromancy. Um, Enough so that they gained the attention of the Catholic Church and were forced to defend themselves against claims by the Papal Nunico, which is an envoy from Rome, um, and who frustrated that envoy so much that he actually attempted to throw Kelly out a window, which I think is phenomenal, as you do. It's like, I've actually had enough of your necromancy and all this babble. Get the hell out of here, right? Literally. Yes, get the hell out of here. I like that. Um, But both Kelly and Dee would claim... Um, to speak to angels, 
This was one of their things through scrying mechanisms, through like literally the crystal ball. And um, this was a special language and later created other religions based on this. Enochian, the the voice of Enoch, is claimed to be an angelic or otherwise known as celestial speech or the first language of God. And in fact, Kelly had dictated directly through scrying um, some of his books um, after talking with angels in this Enochian language, which is, um, was later adopted um, by the Thalamites, founded by Crowley, who believed that with proper preparation and through speaking Enochian, he could um, you know, destroy the ego and he could traverse the abyss that I'm talking about where Chironzon's hanging out in, which is, yeah, it's absolutely nuts. But what was interesting, too, they reckon that um, Kelly had this really bizarre document, and what they call it is the Voynich Manuscript. And the Voynich Manuscript um, is named after the fellow who bought it, sort of from an anonymous source in 1912, because um, the author is unknown. And they carbon dated it to the early 14th, uh, sorry, 15th century, so 1404 sort of thing. Uh, the origins, the authorship, and the purpose are debated. We don't know. Uh, but it's thought to be many things. And because it's a 240-page book full of illustrations of fictitious plants, of astronomy, of undecipherable text, and it's actually quite pretty to look at. So if you look up the Voynich manuscript, it's it's really baffling. So they think it was a cipher uh, or a forgotten language or even a hoax, which is um, really quite annoying, you know, if you think about it, because it takes away a huge amount of, um, I don't know, meaning from it all, you know. And I was going to talk about, a little bit about Crowley, but um, he's nuts, and it really doesn't tie a lot in, and I reckon Crowley and the Golden Dawn... I reckon and that's almost its own thing, my This dude. is what I'm talking about, man. But the only thing that I will mention is the whole point of... Um, me mentioning him in the first place is because uh, on his honeymoon, he eloped with his wife, a lady named um, uh, Rose Crowley, obviously, but formerly Rose Kelly, right, from Edward Kelly lineage, when they, ah. they were in Egypt and on their honeymoon, and she apparently went into an amazing trance, and he was able to um, dictate um, or transpose some of the text uh, into text what she was saying, and he claimed he was being talked to by this praetor human known as Iwas, um, who is the messenger of Horus. And so he wrote all this stuff down through his wife, and this is where he came up with the uh, the Book of Law, which is outlines the principles of his new crazy, crazy bus religion and cult, the uh, Thelema, and who became known as the Thelemites. Oh, it's absolutely nuts, my bro. But so I'm going to move on just a little bit to, um, if you don't mind, I hope I'm not waffling too much. I'm, it's, I'm finding it fascinating. Not at um, all. Please continue. This is outstanding information. And I think it's stuff we probably should know. I think so too. And, and th- this is where we get um, like up to now. This, this gets kind of exciting, right? Um, there's a book, another book. God, they're old books. Well, it wasn't films then was there of course it's a heap of books so we've got another necronomicon this is damn close this is um of exorcisms and certain supplications right now this is an 84 page document that the catholic church had written and it contains the right of exorcism um, authorized for use of uh by the latin church and so this was the ritual book published um 
in originally in 1614, yeah, that they have been using this whole time with the, the rules of exorcism in it. And it was revised and amended, my guy. And now listen to the date here. The 26th of January, 1999. They'd been what? using this book the whole time and they just, in the last 20 years, they've amended it. They've actually thought, oh, okay, well, this might be a little bit outdated. We are continuing to do exorcisms, but there are some things we need to amend. Wow. Updates. Right. Load, loads yes. of updates. Yes, about time. It's only been 400 years. We're mm. using the same text. Um, but so how it works is when a, an exorcism actually needs to take place, um, the church is the authority on it, and um, they need to be absolutely asked um, that a personal object to be protected against this power of the evil one withdrawn from the dimension, and this is called an exorcism. And so the, the exorcists use the order of St. Benedict's formula, right? And the Latin for this is vade retro satana. And that literally translates to step back, Satan. Oh, I don't know. Whoa, gee. I Whoa, that, okay. I want that on a T-shirt. <laughs> like, seriously, that's as tough as they get, right? He's going to be like, oh, gosh, really? Oh, you told right, me. I'm, wow. Gee, I better oh, step back. Easy. No need to be you snippy. <laughs> oh, fine. But, have listen, this is, this is the interesting thing about the film that we've discussed, of course. Um, in the Roman Catholic Church, right, exorcisms were seldom performed in the United States. But, of course, in the 1970s, after a very particular film came out and a few other literatures surrounding it, so many more cases, thousands and thousands and thousands of cases of demonic possession began to be reported. This is, and what happened was no one had actually really done it as a, you know, hugely, apart from what you said, the documented um, case in uh, 49, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it goes crazy. And so what happened was, this is where some new rules, this is what absolutely had to be amended, is um, these rogue priests would be cruising around the fringes, uh, were taking advantage of all these claimed demonic possessions. I forming. hate rogue priests on the fringes. <laughs> it's kind of badass it's never in a way. good. I'm the, I'm the maverick priest. I man. hate it when you're going to get your fringes checked and they go, well, here's your problem. You got, <laughs> you got some a rogue, rogue priest. priest. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but anyway, so they're doing this stuff, right? Putting their hands up for all these exorcisms and unsanctioned by, you know, no official sanction from the church. Um, oh, and so the... Um, the contemporary American religion uh, document here says these clandestine underground affairs undertaken without the approval of the Catholic Church and without rigorous psychological screening that the church required are deeply yes. unfavorable. This is where we're getting to, my guy. Um, and so they've actually really crunched down on all of this sort of stuff. People just going, yeah, I can exercise. Yeah, it's probably definitely a demon. But what we're really not sort of um, getting... Talking to you, Zach Bacon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so what you need to do is ascertain whether this person who requires a demonic exorcism isn't in fact completely mentally damaged in sort really, really mm -hmm. incredibly horrible ways. Now, before I touch on that, I would just like to read this um this little list of um examples and this is like a little checkbox for exorcisms that is okay. actually in the document for the catholic church when they're ascertaining whether somebody has uh, a demon within them and right, it's absolutely yeah. nuts so the, we can find all sorts of meanings to this list but let's go through some of them all right so Please. loss or lack of appetite sometimes that happens mm. to me 
you know. Mm. Cutting, scratching and biting of skin. I'm assuming that's your own skin. Um, yes, that's quite horrible. A cold feeling in the room. It's cold in here right now. Yeah. Yeah, I see some dead people from time to time. You've got that. Yeah. Um, oh, unnatural oh, bodily God. postures and changes in a person's face or body. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, mm. I see. Um, yeah. In the morning, you can really look different. I know. I know this yeah. already. I know. That's yeah. why I need my beauty sleep. It doesn't get enough. Um, the possessed losing control of their normal personality and entering into a frenzy or rage and attacking okay. others. You know. Well, you've done that too, but that's, that's fine. I'm not I'm saying anything. I'm literally ticking this as I go. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, guilty. Guilty as charged. Power of Christ um, compels you. There you go. Power. <laughs> now, a good example of change in the person's voice. You just did that. Um, oh yeah, supernatural Jeez. physical strength, not subject to a person's age or build. Right, that's more me than you. I know, I know. I know physical strength. Speaking in tongues, uh, the person cannot have learned before, which ties into knowledge of past events a person cannot have known about, knowledge of a present event the person is not witnessing, or um, a prediction about what will uh, come to pass in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, levitation, moving objects and things, now, the expelling objects. Ah, uh, right? you and yeah, I both things, guilty. Yeah. Certain animals apparently get expelled. <laughs> oh, like, no. seriously, I'm not sure where from. I'll leave that imagination run completely wild. Richard um, Gere would uh, be guilty there, would he not? <laughs> Jennifer Kite. I think there's a whole lot of people that um, expel certain things. Um, and the final two here after this, 13 dot points, right? Oh. Yeah, I know. Intense hatred or aversion or a violent reaction towards all religious objects or items. And, of course, antipathy to pour, towards entering a church, uh, speaking Jesus' name, hearing scripture, seeing crucifixes. Is it crucify? Crucifixes. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, that's a little list of what they deem as a checklist for... Uh, you know what is possibly demonic possession, and that's you know we've 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 been sort of fairly uh, jovial through that, which yes. is clearly for me a survival mechanism in my deep deep discomfort here. Yes, um, but yeah, body contortions and things like you know what was the line there? Extreme or different body contortions that yeah. is obviously inclusive of you know heads turning around. And, yes, yes, you know crazy flexibility. Um, I'm not. Not sure if you're familiar with or have seen any of the extended or deleted scenes, depending on which cut of the Exorcist you watch, but the bit where Reagan, you know, they, they hired an acrobat to come down the stairs. Yes, yes. Oh, like like, contortionist, that's crazy. Yeah, right? yeah I know. Yeah. So, fine examples, you know, it really, really yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and just a, like a couple of things on that, and then I'll talk about a real case of exorcism, which is oh. absolutely tragic. Oh. Um, it really is probably the most famous one of all. But, I mean, it's so important, you know, if you're a priest, <laughs> to realize that, you know, there are actually the, the mind, man, complex place. There is a lot yeah. going on in there at all given times, you know. And it's so, so easy to... Um, you know, if you have no knowledge, once again, we know we're talking about the old, the old adage when, you know, you can't understand what's going on and scientifically it must be magic, blah, 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 you know. But dissociative identity disorder, that's real, you know, to those that don't know, that's multiple personalities. And that's something that is absolutely real. And so yes. if you don't sort of ascertain that this is what this could potentially be or rule that out, then th- this is incredibly likely. So there must be rigorous medical and psychological testing here, man, before yes. you boil it down to, well, it must be a demon. There could be no other explanation for that. Now, yes. 
it, that's pretty pretty wild, isn't it? And that, and to be honest with you, bringing this back to to the film, they're probably some of the more difficult scenes to watch as well. I mean, that is, I feel like that's well covered in the actual movie when they're sort of introducing another form of testing, um, neurological testing. Yeah. So, you know, the poor kid literally goes through a spinal tap. Mm. Um, oh gosh, you know, some of those. Oof. Do you know what's terrifying about that dude? was seeing the archaic 70s medical equipment. Oh, jeez, dude. And the fact that you're awake for it, man. Yes, and, and lobotomies aren't off the table. And, you're not, a, oh. you're not anesthetised for, for a process like that because it, you know, it interferes with the data. So let me just ever so discuss like an actual case of exorcism. <laughs> Probably one of the most famous cases. And you can look it up. And they made a this – is, this is a girl named Annalise Michelle or Mikkel, um, a German girl, and they made a film about this in 2005 called The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and it's based upon her, you know, the actuality of um, what happened to her. She was only 22, man, when she passed, yeah, and um, it's really quite messed up. She had 67 exorcism rites performed on her before her passing, and it was sort of like, the classic, the classic cliched possession. I'd be very surprised if, you know, some influence wasn't used in the making of The Exorcist from some of this as well, which is interesting. Um, it was sort of first identified by her family friend who noticed that she smelled, right, quote, devilishly bad, um, refused to drink holy water. I probably wouldn't either, to be honest, but she also couldn't or wouldn't walk past the crucifix, right? Ah. So they thought something was wrong, and after you know giving herself some, um, giving her some, you know, actual brain doctory, uh, you know, acquirement um, for what she was having seizures and all this sort of stuff, and starting to go a little bit weird and getting a little bit aggressive, they did decide that it was probably best to perform some exorcisms. So after two rites, she got worse. She got completely worse, um, and with multiple suicide attempts, um, she allegedly started eating insects and, like, seriously licking her own whiz off the floor and happily free-flowing and doing that sort of stuff, which Reagan does at the party, um, you know, nearly at the start of the film. And in 75, after her third exorcism, the Bishop of Versburg believed he had, in fact, vanquished the demons, right? But only the next day they reappeared and she was worse again if you can imagine now it was thought that she was apparently possessed by six demons right now get this get who these demons were she got judas like the judas lucifer himself cain the brother of abel the the killer hitler the roman emperor nero and an unnamed disgraced catholic priest she told everyone this is who she was possessed by, and she had this amazing conflict between them. This is why she, she was absolutely so nuts. Her sessions were recorded over 43 cassettes of her indeed speaking in tongues, which I learned to be called xenoglossy, which is quite a, quite a cool word. Um, she was abusive. She had sporadic and really violent behavior. She wouldn't eat or drink for weeks on end, and oh. this is, in fact, what finally saw her demise, yeah? It was literally malnutrition. Her parents and the priests shortly after were charged with inflicting death by criminal negligence um, and sentenced to six months jail. And this 
um, the prison time was wavered, so they actually didn't go to prison after all. But it's an absolutely tragic thing, and it was actually very hard and uncomfortable to do the research on this because there's photos of her. Oh, no. And shit, man, she does not look well, all right? It's actually quite quite awful what happened to this girl, whether it was literal demons or it was this deeply undiagnosed psychosis that she was going through. That sounds a little bit like a multiple personality sort of thing. If she's got six demons in there, you know, it's absolutely nuts, but the poor devil. But um, there's a really quite baffling, and this is how serious they're sort of taking it. And this is, once again, you know, when we've got people um, and institutions with money and power and influence, and they deem something that seems hocus-pocus to be of absolute importance, well, in uh, April of 2018, there's a really interesting BBC article and it's headline, and I'll read from it if you don't mind. Please. The Vatican has opened its doors for its annual exorcism course amid increasing demand among some of the world's Catholic communities. So, in 2018, as many as 250 priests from 50 countries arrived in Rome to learn how to identify demonic possession, to hear personal accounts from other priests, and to find out more about the rituals bef- behind expelling demons. Exorcism remains controversial in part due to its depiction in popular culture and horror films, but there have also been cases of abuse linked to exorcisms in ranges of religious sects. A week-long Vatican course, right, is described as the only international series of lectures of its kind. It first opened its doors in 2005 and a number of priests attending, right, has doubled since then, and the event costs nearly 500 Australian dollars, and it covers the theological, uh, psychological, and anthropological backgrounds of exorcisms. And so last year, this is 2017 that would be, uh, Pope Francis told priests that they must not hesitate to refer parishioners to exorcists if they suffer from genuine spiritual disturbances. But half a million people reportedly seek exorcisms every year in Italy. While report, while a report by a Christian think tank, Theos, in 2017, said the practice is also on the rise in the UK due to the rise and the spread of Pentecostal churches. Ooh. Now, I don't know much about Pentecostal churches, but um, I had looked it up, and this is verbatim. says, Pentecostalism is a form of Christianity that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit with the direct experience of the presence of God by the believer. So Pentecostals believe that faith must be powerfully experiential and not something found merely through ritual or thinking. So literally looking for real, actual signs of the Lord. So if you take then that into account, a demonic sort of signal is sign enough for some that there, if there is this devilish behavior, there must in fact be the antithesis being a godly presence. Yes, um, yes. And so all of a sudden the demand has increased exponentially across the globe for priests who are capable of exorcisms. So it's it's hard to know, man. That's a lot of money being flung at this, a lot of people, a lot of resources. So the Vatican seems to think this is worthy, that it's something to be paid attention to, in fact, enough to train 250 priests a year. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, man, you know, we're leading ourselves to a point of, you know, like we've just discussed in a couple of episodes um, 
previously with um you know the nazis taking all of their resources once they obtained this power in focusing on finding these artifacts which for all in- intents and purposes should be hocus pocus but they're using resources to do it yeah man. and this though is real is what the vatican is doing you know it's absolutely nuts so look i, I do sort of wind up there i think um in my little understanding of how deep i went in this and the fact that it's still relevant um today is is really quite baffling, you know, to me. It means there's something going on in there, dude. I, I concur, and, and what a wonderful journey that was. I mean, we've alluded to it earlier. That it's, it's a motif and an idea and a concept that has been, I would say, you know, my understanding since the first bipedal hominids assembled around a fire and told stories or exchanged ideas, these... You know, it's it's a very binary thing. You can't posit the the existence of a of a divinity without uh, you know the other end of the spectrum, um, or 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 so I guess the the major religions would posit. Even if it is that understanding of one can't appreciate light without the concept of darkness. You know what I mean? So it's certainly a topic that's not dying away. It's certainly very alive in popular culture. We sort of we're getting an endless font of movies of this style. The old man, the grumpy old man in me, posits that they're just fainter photocopies of the original. But mm. um, yeah, it is it is an interesting idea, and I think there's always going to be something in us that wonders what's under the bed, or you know, in the closet, or that that bump in the middle of the night, and. Sort of going back to the going back to the movie, um, and this is something that I definitely did want to discuss. It's probably one of the bits of the movie that gets, in terms of auteurs or film fans, debating quite quite aggressively. The first ten minutes of this film are pretty much donated to or given to the idea or the law that you've just talked about. Mm. We start this film with ten minutes in Iraq looking at antiquity and yes culminating in the actual you know the big moment for me there is is when you know father merrin is looking at the statue of the aforementioned beast beastie that you talked about uh, pazuzu and there's so much in that given moment and to me it's all about this loaded history and this loaded cosmology and that's what this movie feeds into. It's that this is this is kind of in our DNA, this this fear of the malevolent. You know, in acknowledging the benevolent, you've got to, I guess, you, you, you know, one must not take one's eyes off the malevolent. And, mm. you know. The, and as you said, it's sort of ancient, right? And, oh. You know, ever since we've been walking around, human hominid. Um, and because Pazuzu, that motif that was used is in 800 BC. Yeah. You know, and that's, he must have been around a little bit longer before they even worked out how to carve a picture of him you know? exactly it's it's really quite nuts how how human beings operate and it's really interesting that this was in 1973 mm. you know to a worldwide audience to a western audience i mean what a what a brave move to make really the first 10 minutes of your film in a foreign language because it's mostly all subtitled um, and there's not a lot of dialogue anyway there's not a lot of lines in it there's there's sustained moments of just imagery and silence but um 
that's what I think is interesting about this film. It's honouring, or my interpretation is that that you can't do without it. I've heard lots of film critics go, oh, just edit that first bit out and you don't need it. But to me, you're in that moment, in that sequence, you're putting out the gravitas and you're putting out... You're laying the player, the major players on the chessboard. I think. Yeah, dude, that was the that start. No, nah, seriously, that's that's an incredible. I've completely forgotten it started like that. Me too. You know, in northern Iraq, and as you say, like as it starts, you know, it's mostly silent apart from these horrible strings they've got in there, the little screechy strings, and really sets the tone. It's uneasy. You know, Max's character is not necessarily in control he's no. sort of freaking out a little bit by this too and then all of a sudden he tells his uh, archaeologist friends he's got to go and it's um it's really unnerving and then that's pretty much never mentioned until the final frame of the movie i think isn't it when you see that whole thing again to me there's a really important dramatic parallel there's the moment you know there's the moment when at the start um he is he's staring at the statue and it's almost like there's a there's an interaction or a dialogue between them and von Sydow does so well in putting you know there's fear there and there's recognition there and it's mm. almost like there's you know a meeting and yeah you're right he's not he's not looking like you know I shall smite the foul demon he's he's not in control mm. now you compare that to the moment when he first arrives at Reagan's home, all sort of shot with that, you know, beginning with that epic poster shot, you know, of him stepping out of the car silhouetted. Mm. There's a moment, man, when he first comes in the home and he's talking to Reagan's mother and it cuts quickly to a shot of, well, the demon Reagan opening her eyes and there's this kind of like, eh, you're here. There's this recognition, mm. which I think is all set up in those in those first first you know moments. I'm curious though. You did mention there was a bit. There was a moment where you sort of chuckled or you laughed. I mean, not to spoil it for others, but what was that moment for you? Was it more of a hokey spifex thing that's not done well, or was it something else? It was a yeah. It was a clear design choice i mean for all intents and purposes it's horrible but it's a moment where she's having a a moment she's having a seizure or something and she's not really in control and she's yelling out her mum's name going help yeah. me mum and she's sitting up in the bed and she's rocking back and forth and her hair's gone all over the place and the bed's shaking around a little bit well it was i don't know it was if it was to disarm what was happening but it was actually kind of hilarious to me and i had to have a chuckle it did take away some of the seriousness of it that's not to say that it's not harrowing to others, but I suppose after going through all of this research that I've done for this prog, that isn't scary to me, that little bit, because I've seen some other horrors, my dude. Yeah, is yeah, the, yeah. yeah. You know, I suppose that might be why it is. So, you know, I can disarm that. But yeah, it was a little bit funny. And some of the special effects um, throughout it, gee, man, we haven't seen that before, but from a lens of 2021, looking back upon... 1973 the head turning around you can see it shaking a little bit as it's that's turning. right you know yeah. it's got a whole lot of puppetry and i could see what they were doing but i suppose i can see what they're doing is the thing and as soon as you see behind the curtains 
it takes away the gravitas and seriousness of it. Yeah. You know, that's why the opening scene, it sets it up so damn well and it's not comfortable. It's not nice to be in, you know, but then when you get to that spefix section and actually can get a little bit funny. It's, there's so many parallels for me with Jaws in that you get lost in, well, not lost, but you, you're immersed in good filmmaking. The first, you know, the moment in Jaws when Quint is eaten by the shark, it it looks terrible. It hasn't Mm. aged well at all. In fact, that movie was probably, you know, helped by the fact that the shark didn't work as much as they wanted it to. But yet you look through it. You look through it. Robert Shaw's performance, his curdling scream... You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) so one part of me is going, that is the crappiest looking shark. But then Robert, Robert Shaw starts that scream and it's like, oh no, there's a dude getting, he's almost, he seems to be portraying what it must be like to be going, my spinal cord's crushed, my legs are gone, but I'm still aware. Oh God, I'm going to get eaten by a shark. Like, Mm, mm. It's fear and pain and it's everything all in one. And that puts me back into it. And so the same, the similar things happened intermittently with The Exorcist. And I think the thing, and I'm curious if it was the same experience for you, I think the thing that kept drawing me back into it was indeed the sound design. Yes, easily, man. Because uh, not only the sounds and the music, the violin stabs in particular, um, and the things that Reagan is saying, ugh. I'm almost, I'm almost going to say that I don't think it's been done better. No, well, I can't think of another. Maybe good example. it's been done as well. Uh, yes, maybe it's been done as well. But the Conjuring, a lot of these movies, the Exorcism of, of Emily Rose, did just I don't know. The sound design just wasn't as harrowing for me. Those 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 movies were more like, oh my god, look at the visuals, look at look at what I'm looking at. I don't think I don't think other movies have juxtaposed the innocence of a child with the malevolence of a demon as yeah. well. That's a thing that hasn't aged that badly for me. And again, this this kind of was was I guess it's the progenitor of the idea and we've seen so many movies following since that this doorway got kicked open by someone using a freaking Ouija yeah. board. Yeah. That's another thing I forgot about this film, bro, bro. I forgot that her initial reactions with, you know, I guess it's Pazuzu, were through a Ouija board. Yeah, and what did she call him? Captain Howdy. Captain Howdy. Yeah, right. So this, to me, was a really... Again, it introduced so many ideas. The the idea of the demon being a deceiver, which all that history that you mentioned, it's rich in that lore of there's deception involved. That that there's there's a way of getting still need still needs permission, but there's a way of deception deployed to get that permission. And this movie, I guess for me, this was the. It's the equivalent of the I, I believe it's also the origin of where you have can I say sub law? <laughs> sub law categories. Yeah. I I would posit it's a parallel why the vampire needs to ask permission to come into your house or needs to be you know invited into the house. Mm. Uh, surely that's got to be have its origins and parallels with 
you know, a lot of these ideas of agency being the, you know, agency being the greatest thing that the Lord has given you, just be careful because the demons will try to gain that or corrupt that agency mm. by trickery. Because that's effectively, you know, what they're saying. That's what you don't do with the Ouija board. Don't don't do that stuff because you're giving some something, if you believe any of this at all, permission to come in. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but you see, you got to. I mean, I got to sort of understand a little bit more then about what a Ouija board actually is, and it's it's a it's a made up thing. Is the problem? It's a creation. It's in fact a parlor game created by a guy. And I don't know if it's got much gravitas, you know. I well, I know. I love the way we think differently about this. I I would agree with you in that superficially, it's just an object. I guess the point that I'm clumsily trying to work through is that it's an object that can potentially be commandeered by the nefarious entity to gain permission. Well, because, yes, look, 100%. It's not necessarily a powerful object in itself. No. But the thing is, what I do know is it was invented or patented in 1890 by a fellow named Elijah Bond, full intentionally being a talking board, um, you know, for parlor game tricks and all this sort of stuff. So there is a bunch of fakery. However, it was based upon some... Other stuff, talking boards have come in all shapes and forms from Definitely. dynasties in China and some really amazing things. So the current iteration of a Ouija board is, in fact, it's hocus pocus. That's actually made up. But yeah. the intentionality behind that, regardless of what the medium, perhaps that's the thing. So, yeah, I posed it and then undid it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, purely just for water cooler man-childian discussion, which we love, I posit it's potentially a doorway that the nefarious entity could recognise. It's like, oh, I, I know that. It looks like one of these other things. Yeah, yeah, I reckon. And it's the intention behind it. People are using it for that exact purpose, for divining, right? So It's exactly. And again, it's the permission thing. Yes. So we, we see this across law again. You know, the black-eyed children. God damn it, I hope we never do that subject. They freak me out. I'm going to write it down. No, he's writing it down. Um, the black-eyed children, for example, come to the door and and use, I don't even know what it is, but uh, they tr- they try to convince, but still can't come in unless you, unless someone in the household invites them in. That's got that vampiric the, that, thing, yeah. Oh, sorry. That's right. And I, I just think surely these have got to be echoes from the original idea of the of the demonic. Mm. Um, Carol Ann, for example, you know, in Poltergeist. Again, I'm just pontificating and just water cooling, but to me, that's what those early scenes are about when she's on the phone. Mm, mm. Because you see her going, yes, yes. You know, to me, that's again an entity using just any kind of portal as a way to get permission. It's also, in my mind, a a really good thing to tell children, as in to not invite strangers into your damn house. Because they could be vampires. Totes. You know, it could be another little thing like that. And that doesn't mean any weight is taken away from what you're saying, but that also ties in nicely because- Actually, honestly, I think it's all coming from from the same, you know, law and it's all got potentially transferable morals of the story. Yeah. Oh, exactly. It's like, look, exactly. there's, there's good and there's not so mm-hmm. good. And you just want to be careful. What good has given you is 
agency. Yes. Please be careful how the not so good could corrupt that and use that against you. Precisely. You know, again, it's a Campbellian hero with a thousand faces transferable sort of law story. Dude, if I had to press upon you to 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 um pull out some favorite scenes or favorite moments mm. from this movie, mate, like if I had to even press my thumb upon you even further to say what's your favorite scene? Um, yeah, hard to know because there's a lot of crackers, you know. I think for just the opening is stunning because I'd forgotten about it and it's deadly important and it's seemingly disconnected and you don't really remember it until the end when finally um, Von Sydow rocks up. You're like, right, okay, this is the purpose, you know. And ding, I think, ding. I think the correlation between those two and him rocking up with the iconic, the iconic as you said, uh, the poster shot where he's underneath the lamplight, oh. you know, it's really quite amazing. Yeah, it's it's really hard to pin it down, but I think some of um, Reagan's over-the-topness uh, really full-on. But I do like, I think I'm going to say, when Karis um, is finally requested to do it, uh, do an exorcism, and um, he's actually confident and understands that this thing is playful, it's wicked, and he already is aware. He's not surprised. He's actually he's actually fully ready to have this exorcism take place, you know. I think yeah, I think that's where it is for me because um, he comes across a little bit. He mentions he's lost his faith a bunch of times, yes. and you're like, oh, well, what's the point, dude? And he's got all these boxing scenes. I'm like, great, but then when he yeah, when he activates, I think that's good. Yes. Yes, I, I would say I would say very similar. You know, the the Iraq sequence was just like, oh, that's right. Oh, this is rad. I think also the the, the Father Karras moments probably would have to be, you know, the moments that he's being tested. Mm. Again, like you said, you nailed it. He he knows. He goes, I'm I'm talking to a I'm talking to a tiger shark here. I know what this thing is, but it's still gonna test him. And so, you know, doing the obviously hitting him in really low blows with his guilt over the passing of his mother and mm. how he treated her in her final years and, and how she's being treated now wherever oh, she is absolutely Ugh. just just that is that is the lowest blow it's like oh that's what you're weak about let's just start working there even even the final scenes you know he he almost cracks you know, like, again, spoilers, but it's almost like the, the traditional rite of exorcism has actually failed. Mm. He ends up pulling a 12-year-old, admittedly heavily possessed girl, out of the bed and snotting her. Like, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. having a go. Bro. Yes, he is. Oh, like, man. he's got ground and pound, you know? Like, it's like trying to watch a UFC fighter just pound the crap out of his opponent. Yeah, hammer fists. And then the whole... There's no other way I can do this, and and you see him act it. He plays it. He goes, "Ah, oh, I've got to, I've got to, I got to take this thing out." And that whole scene for me, I think, is the favourite, even mm. though it's tragic, because in one moment we've kind of failed. In the other moment, it's so well orchestrated, bro, bro, because because Reagan reaches up after he says, you know, gives the permission. Come in to me. Reagan reaches up and pulls the, you know, the necklace off, Karis. Yes. So it's almost like I can't go in there until, all right, now I can. Yes. And even then it's wonderful because 
you see the demon Keras become the demon, and the demon starts looking straight down at Reagan, going, oh, now I'm going to... But his face pops back to Keras, and he's like, no, out the window I go. Um, yeah, I would yeah. I would have to say that's my favorite scene because it's just like that dude is broken. The exorcism, quote unquote, the right has uh, has failed. You know, von, von Sido's down for the count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a pretty amazing thing. And I'd forgotten that, that was how the, the the demise was. I'd forgotten that that's how it worked, man. Yeah. So yeah, and for yeah, for the exorcism to actually fail, uh, you know, and for him to have to leap out that window, hell, yeah, yeah, it's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and then knowing I mean, that those shakings is him at the end, and it's actually him. Like, yeah, nice knowledge, man. God, and it's a weird thing, isn't it? Like, this leads me to posit a, a water cooler style question. I mean, I think moving on to well, moving on to kind of gripes if we had them. To me, it's glorious, but it's a bit of a gripe because it's like, okay, well, what happens? Like, mm. is is the demon banished? Like, I mean, I'm, and I'm I'm ignoring sequels because I really didn't. Yeah, I won't party with any of the sequels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think he was writing at the ending for a sequel. I actually don't know that. But no. Well, look, man, it's kind of like um, the difference. I'd be interested to see what is written in the book as opposed to what's in the film. That's if it's a great as point. close, right? Because my example here is um, for those that have watched and loved. Fight Club is an incredible book. It's an incredible book. And it so is. how he absolves that to spoil a whole film that no one thought I was going to spoil is uh, to get rid of Tyler Durden, who has possessed him somewhat, right? It's not that dissimilar. Yeah. Which is his psychosis. But to kill Tyler Durden in the book, he has to kill himself. Full yes. stop. Because it's him. Yeah. But in the film, he shoots himself through the jaw and he lives but tyler's dead doesn't make any sense that's just stupid so in order to evacuate pazuzu right or whoever this demon is inside reagan or then inside karis as it were he has to die bro you can't just do a symbolic death like oh i've killed him bang bang look at me he has to die it's that simple so that that's my answer I, i think that's a hole i'd say so it's not revealed but I don't even know if it's a hole because what it's been suggested and one theory that I like is that, yeah, Karis dies with his other priest mate giving him the final rites. And so the concept is one one reviewer, and I like this theory, is that when you get the final rites, everything is absolved and therefore Pazuzu cannot, can no longer dwell in this holy sacrament vessel and must, you know, go back to wherever Mm. it resides. So, All right, nice pickup, yeah. Well, potentially sort of saying Karis may, may, would have most likely have known this because, you know, the cop's there, the cop's downstairs, the other priest is there. That's why it's so beautiful. Like, it's he's getting the last rites. It's so emotional. He's got enough in him. He's clearly going to die. Like, he's he's lying on four, four square metres of blood. It's like, ooh, I don't think we can stitch that. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, which, which, so, so that ending kind of, that in that context, that ending actually works quite well for me. So, obviously, okay. yeah. Um, you know, Pazuzu's got a portal back to, I guess, to Iraq or wherever. Mm, like, you the know, ether. it's like, mm. yeah. Yeah, and and in and in doing so, I don't know. To my mind, anyway, this this kid is quote unquote cured. You know. Yeah, 
if I if I had yeah if I had any other gripes, I mean, do you, do you have any other what you would say gripes with the movie? No, or? no, the rest of it held up quite well. And if you you know once again make sure you put your nineteen seventy three horror hat on, totally. it doesn't drop the ball. Seriously. Compare Seriously. compare it to anything of the time. Compare it to stuff that came out even in you know, 1980. Oh, it's going to stand up. And you can, and it still stands up. You're right. Because on one hand, I agree with you, some of the spifex is a bit weird. Like, pea soup has not aged well. No. However, um, little things, like the wounds on Reagan's face, specifically designed to, to look like they're self-inflicted, yes. um, is contributes to the overall malevolence and tragedy. Yes, exactly. And that ticks the uh, the old boxes really nicely from the old the, the real document that the uh, you know the the church had written in 1614. So yeah, all of those yeah. things from what we think we know of actual demonic possession they match up very nicely. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, in order to start to turn the crazy bus home, takeaways from this are from my perspective, especially with your learned uh, tutelage, that, that, look, these ideas aren't going away. They're transferable across, you know, really any any human who's ever taken a breath. So maybe there's something to it. Mm. Maybe there isn't. Mm. Who knows? All of the, all of the um, history and the law associated, it is about, you know, be, be careful who you, who you sign your rights over to. And look, I think we've got a we've got a movie here which we both agree is still surprisingly scary, mm. and uh, we just wouldn't we wouldn't have the genre as we know it today with without this without this movie. I, I wonder what the next paradigm shift will look like. I mean, in our lifetime, G Fresh, I think found footage was probably the only real paradigm shift that we've seen in the in the genre since um, yeah you're right you know anything with a like an actual modern sort of twist um, is the only thing that can do it because we've evolved quite a lot this film is old man the ideas aren't yeah. but the the things that we human beings are capable of and that we accept into our lives have quite drastically so yeah. that's the media yeah. in which it needs to happen now but um, whether that's got the same you know, effect that, you know, can have filling up cinemas, having them have heart attacks and, you know, God forbid, miscarriages in the theatre. Come on. I just don't know if we'll see that again. No. And I don't, oh God, imagine what it would have to be to elicit those results. Because maybe maybe there are attempts made with, you know, horror porn, the whole Saw movies well, and all that. look at Human Centipede and oh. Saw. I mean, those got oh. close because it just That's became awful. gross, right? It just became gratuitous. Yeah. And that is horrible. If for some intents and purposes, they were done incredibly well, enough so that you actually can kind of forget that there is someone behind the camera for a oh, few yeah. minutes because what you're seeing is nuts. It's actually not okay. So that's probably as far as it goes, but I think it just gets to a point, man, pop culturally. We've seen a lot, and it does take a lot to shock us now. Yeah. But I'm also drifting to the other way. I'm, I'm finding that I don't want to watch that anymore. I don't need to access the adrenaline or the discomfort that some of these films give you. Yeah. I really do like what you said at the start. Can we do like the Yeti or yes. Harry and the Hendersons or something a little bit more, <laughs> you know? You know, so I don't have to drift into this godforsaken realm again because i you know we have tendencies to go deep and that is God not forsaken is it's not a part purpose yeah and, <laughs> no. and i do think i do think you know to sort of continue to try to wrap up the thing about this is i think it's you know again this is maybe where you insert soundbite from constantine what if i told you that god and the devil made a wager 
for the souls of all mankind. No direct contact with humans. That would be the rule. Just influence. See who would win. I just think it's the idea of like the more attention that you put into this, the more that the more that attention you will garner. The the more you, you can see them if you want to see them. You know, but they'll see you. That there's exactly. there's there's some ideas here that just messed with messed with my little head. So um, yeah, there's just realms there that I'm glad there's guys like John Constantine taking care of Biznak in that in that department. Because yeah, it's not for me. <laughs> no, no, I'm glad you mentioned Constantine too, because that's a, a red hot demonic um, possession film. Absolutely, absolutely. Deeply, deeply entrenched in the fantasy, but gee, it's good. And stands up. That one still stands up to mine. I, I, I love it. And and arguably one of the finest cinematic performances. Or I, I would rate, I can't remember the actor's name, but I would rate his performance of Satan up against anyone. Um, oh, yeah, Peter Stormare. I do. Yeah, Swedish actor. That is, that is one of the best Satans ever, you know. Yeah, he's... Mm-hmm. he's he looks like he stinks, doesn't he? He's grotty. He's, yeah, he's amazing. Such a such a such a brilliant, understated performance. Again, the words malevolence. You know, Pacino's is just Pacino's. You know, it's just different. <laughs> That's right. You're not going to yeah. get Pacino playing Satan without you know. No, the Pacinoisms we've come to know, which we love. Right, we love. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Well, look, man, this is. Um, I reckon we might have found our way back to shore. I, I think, think we have. Don't my mind l- me thinking. Yeah, 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 my little Pacino. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my best, P. Bizzle. We're doing our best. Um, thanks for hanging out and giving us that deep dive in the film, and it's been a lot of fun exploring this. I mean, fun is a subjective and objective word. Um, it's been a it's been a task. I've had fun in a way, but it has challenged. Um, yeah. I would say this subject for me has been the first time where it's felt, yeah, a little bit more of a task, as in, yeah. oh, this is this is pretty scary stuff. For, you know, it's just been different. So, yes, as with all subjects, good listener, we will we will come back to these sorts of things. This has just been the 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 sort of o- opening chapter, but yeah. We may not come back to it as quick as other subjects. <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. But, yeah, look, it has been a rollicking ride. Thanks very much for coming on this, our dear players at home or in the car or in the pool, wherever you might be. Um, and P-Boss, once again, it's just amazing, man. Great work today and uh, look forward to the next one, whatever that might be. So, once again, man-childian candidate. We're on the FBs. We're on the uh, the old Instagrams. And you can contact us directly via that if you've got ideas for a progue or if, you wanna, if you've want if you got a demonic experience. God, I hope you haven't. I'm very sorry. But, you know, I'll listen. Can't solve it. I won't. Constantine. I know you won't, but I'll take this one for the team. <laughs> but um, manchildian at G- uh, manchildiancandidate at gmail.com is also a way you can get onto us as well. So please give us some feedback and we'll respond. Um, it's been an absolute treat. Thanks, P-Boss. My name's G-Man, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time for whatever rollicking adventure we have planned. And who knows what it could be, man. Something a bit puffy, maybe fluffy. Absolutely. That might be nice. We'll do like a <laughs> Dr. Ab- Zeus book, yeah. <laughs> Look, yeah, all of them. We'll do it. Was he really a doctor? We'll discuss that. <laughs> Malpractice suits, you know, claimed against First him. name Mal, <laughs> second name Practice. Oh, Dr. Zeus. What a lovable cat. All right. Look, it's been amazing. Thanks very much, dude. And we'll catch you all another time. This is the Manchildian Candidate. Out!